so many times we're full of emotions, emotions that we're not processing, that we're trying to run away from or ignore or act like they didn't happen. And the result is that we have low-grade anxiety that leaks out into every part of our lives all the time. And we have a whole culture and a whole generation that's developed around this idea of running from our pain, running from our problems, getting on social media to complain about worldwide problems, and then when it comes down to it in our everyday lives, we try to run away from anything painful or difficult. And the reality is that eventually this starts to leak out into every area of our lives because we haven't dealt with it. The Bible actually presents this cathartic release for our grief that it calls lament, creating this, uh, this space in order to bring to God a complaint, a protest, that this isn't right, things shouldn't be this way. Why am I suffering? Why is this person in pain? Why is our society like this? And it actually allows us a way to process our grief and move through our grief to the other side with hope and ultimately into a deeper experience with God. And so over the next few weeks, we're, we're looking at what is lament? What is this spiritual practice of lamenting and how do we do it and how can it benefit us and how can it help us understand what we're feeling and how to process it. And so in this series, we're going to be looking at different stories in the Bible where there's a character who is processing their grief through lament. And we're going to look at what we can learn about them. And last week I introduced lament and I said that it follows a pretty simple pattern. You have protest and then you have grief and then there's always this turning point, whether it's in someone's personal story, whether it's in a psalm, there's always this turn where you start to leave your grief and you begin to walk up the hill in hope and then eventually you get to the top of the mountain and you encounter blessing this deeper experience with God because you've walked through the valley of grief and this week we're going to talk about Hannah's lament now the story of Hannah is found in 1 Samuel 1 verses 4 through 18 and it says whenever Elkaniah offered a sacrifice he would always give portions of the meat to his wife, Penaniah, and to each of her sons and daughters. But he gave a double portion to Hannah, for he loved her, even though the Lord had kept her from conceiving. Her rival would taunt her severely just to provoke her, because the Lord had kept Hannah from conceiving. Year after year, when she went up to the Lord's house, her rival taunted her in this way. Hannah would weep and would not eat. Hannah, why are you crying? Her husband, Elkanai, would ask. Why won't you eat? Why are you troubled? Am I not better to you than ten sons? On one occasion, Hannah got up after they ate and drank at Shiloh, and the priest Eli was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. Deeply hurt, Hannah prayed to the Lord and wept with many tears. Making a vow, she pleaded, Lord of armies, if you will take notice of your servant's affliction, remember and not forget me and give your servant a son, I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and his hair will never be cut. And while she continued praying in the Lord's presence, Eli watched her mouth. Hannah was praying silently, and though her lips were moving, her voice could not be heard. And so Eli thought she was drunk, and he said to her, How long are you going to be drunk? Get rid of your wine, woman. No, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman with a broken heart. I haven't had any wine or beer. I've been pouring out my heart before the Lord. Don't think of me as a wicked woman getting drunk. I've been praying from the depth of my anguish and resentment. 
And Eli responded, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant the request you've made of him. May your servant find favor with you, she replied. Then Hannah went on her way, she ate, and she no longer looked despondent. Now, Hannah's lament is not just a hypothetical test case in lament for Darby and I. As many of you know, my wife and I, we tried for many years to get pregnant, and when we finally did get pregnant, we had a miscarriage, and then we went to a fertility doctor trying to get pregnant again, and after lots of money and lots of time, uh, we still weren't able to get pregnant, and now we're in the process of adopting. And so when we read about Hannah weeping on her knees, begging God, saying, I just want to be a parent. I just want to have a child. Please, Lord, hear us. This is not a lament that we just think, oh, that sounds nice. This isn't a faraway story for us. This feels very real and very personal. Hannah's lament is very much Darby's lament. It's very much my lament. We can really um, set some of her desperation because we felt that desperation. Someone once told me after hearing my story of us struggling to get pregnant and have children, they said, that doesn't make any sense. They're like, so you're a pastor. Like you, you work for God. If for lack of a better way to say it. They're like, you left Tennessee where you had friends and family, where you knew things, and you went to a place that you weren't really sure about and you didn't know anybody because you felt like God was telling you to start a church and you followed and you obeyed and things have been up and down and challenging and yet you did it. And so I don't understand why it's so hard for you to have a child. Why doesn't God just make it easy for you? Um, we see several times in this passage where people said or people thought that God was withholding Hannah from having children. They say over and over again in the passage, well, obviously the Lord is keeping her from conceiving in verse 5. And then in 6, you know, she was provoked by her rival because obviously the Lord was keeping her from conceiving. And I think that lament many times pulls out in us our bad theology, our bad ideas about God, the wrong things we think about God and the wrong way that we think God works. Nothing is going to get you to question more what you believe than pain and nothing is going to clarify what you really believe, not just what you say you believe, like pain or grief or tragedy. See, in this uh, early ancient times, to not have children was to be seen as being cursed by the gods. It was like God must be angry with you if you're not able to have children. They had no idea about science. They had no idea about fertility you know, treatments and egg counts. And none of those things were uh, in their mind at all. All they knew about was someone wanted to have a child and they couldn't. Or they didn't seem to be able to or they, they weren't. And so they got this idea that if you were childless, you were a social pariah because there must be something wrong with you because God was preventing you from having children. It was some type of punishment, maybe for a secret sin or crime that nobody knew about. And while that might seem crazy to us today with modern science and medicine and reproductive health, we still have these same type of ideas about God. I mean, that question when someone asked me, like, you're doing all this stuff for God. Doesn't he owe you to make it easy on you? Like, why would you have to suffer or have things hard? 
See, we still have this idea that God is a cosmic genie, and if you keep the right roles, he'll do what you want. He'll make your life easy if you keep the right roles. And so religion becomes about keeping the right roles so that God will give you money and make your life easy so that your family will be happy, your kids will get good jobs and go to the right schools, and everything will be well with you. It doesn't become about you becoming a person like God, a person who lives and loves like him. It becomes about God serving you and making your life as pleasant and happy as possible. And so we still have these wrong ideas about God that if something is happening to us, like we can't have children, well, God must be punishing us. God must be doing this to us. Or if God is doing, or if lots of good things are happening, we're like, well, God must be happy with my behavior or who I am. That's not how the Bible describes God. God is not a cosmic genie that we manipulate into making our lives easy. God does present a way of life that helps us to escape many of the consequences and many of the pitfalls of a destructive life and behavior. Like many times in the Bible, it says, hey, if you do these things, it's gonna come back to hurt you. It's like, if you talk bad about somebody behind their back, they're eventually gonna hear about it and it's gonna hurt your relationship. You know, if you steal, you're eventually gonna get caught and there's gonna be consequences. Those are true things. You know, those are good practical things to be taught. But the Bible also tells us that we live in a broken world and sometimes good people get hurt on the broken pieces of this reality. That isn't God's fault. Doing the right thing doesn't mean you avoid all the wrong things in your world. Doing all the right things, and I have it, Darby and I have it, but our good things that we've done don't somehow earn us God's favor. God gives us his favor freely. It's called grace. He gives us good when we deserve bad. He never makes us earn his kindness. He always wants to shower kindness into the world. He even says in scriptures, he says he rains, he brings down rain on the evil and the good because he's a generous God and he doesn't make you earn his goodness. Now, when I was a kid, I hated conflict. And so I tried to keep every role I could. If I was in school, I tried to keep every role so I wouldn't be in conflict with the teacher. I tried to get the best grades I possibly could so I wouldn't be in conflict with my parents. I tried to avoid every type of conflict by keeping every type of role. And what I found was even if you keep all the roles, there would be sometimes when you'd be falsely accused of something you didn't do and there'd be conflict. There was sometimes where someone just wouldn't like you and even though you didn't do anything wrong, they would find something wrong to get mad at you about. And I just realized sometimes you can be doing all the right things and in a broken world, sometimes you'll get hurt. Sometimes everything won't go your way. It's impossible to escape every conflict in our world. Now, the other thing I noticed about this passage is not only that there's some bad theology going around about God back then and now, the other thing I noticed is people's response to her lament is very much like people's response to grief and lament today. Now, her parent, her, her husband rather, seems super out of touch with the pain that she's feeling. She, here she is, year after year, not able to have children, a social pariah. She, he has a second wife. Likely, Hannah was his first wife and he got the second wife simply to have 
children in order to pass on his family line that was very important in ancient times and all his possessions would have fallen to another family member if he didn't have children and so he literally probably got this second wife just to bear him children and uh, she's making fun of the first wife Hannah saying you can't have kids and so he had to come to me and the husband completely oblivious is like what's wrong Hannah why are you crying Am I not better than children? Look, you got me. And it reminds me of Homer Simpson in one episode of The Simpsons where he comes into Marge's wife and she's crying because she's heartbroken. And he goes, honey, why are you crying? You're in no physical pain. That's the only pain men can understand. And I mean, it's a generalization. Some men are very empathetic. But in general, men tend to be less empathetic. They tend to understand emotional pain less than women do. And uh, there's many times when Darby's upset and I can't, I can't understand why. Like, I have to work really hard at it and listen and be like, okay. Like, I don't need to just wipe this away or pretend like this isn't a real issue because what she's feeling is real. Just because I'm not feeling it doesn't mean that I can dismiss it. Just because you're not feeling someone else's pain, you haven't experienced it, you haven't walked in their shoes, doesn't mean you just get to dismiss it and say it's not real. Just like you wouldn't want someone to dismiss the pain you're feeling just because they haven't experienced it or it doesn't seem real to them. And so he's super out of touch here and um, her fellow wife uses her grief to torment her. And then the religious leader in the story, Eli the priest, he is little better. He tries to dismiss her grief as drunkenness. He's like, oh, she's just drunk. He's, he tries to find a reason or an excuse for her grief. And I, I have to admit, I've not always been the best at this. When people are grieving, when people are crying, it makes me feel uncomfortable. And I try to deflect away from it. I try to explain it. Or I try to even logically come at people and be like, you don't need to be uh, grieving about this. You don't need to be sad. Look at all the good things that are happening. And, and there's a place for that. But grief is not something that you logically process through. You have to emotionally process it. And that means sometimes you don't need somebody coming alongside you and telling you why you shouldn't be sad about it or why it's really not that bad or all the reasons that you have good things on top of that. You need someone to just come and say, I'm with you. I can't fully understand it. I haven't been there. There may be things that you could be happy about right now, but right now what you're feeling is real. And I want you to know that I'm going to be here with you through it. That's what people want. That's what people want when they're hurting. Um, so many times when someone is hurting, we have a tendency to say, I understand. If you haven't gone through the exact same thing, and even if you have, your experiences and your background and your personality make it a different experience, you can't really say you understand. When people are grieving, they don't really want you to understand. They want you to be available. And I mean, there's so many times when um, maybe my wife and I are grieving or I've seen somebody else we know who's grieving and somebody comes up and they say, I understand. And they mean well, right? They, they mean something kind and gracious by that, uh, but it doesn't come across that way. Just like when you're really hurting, you don't want somebody to come up and say, I understand. Here, here. It's okay. You want somebody to say, I'm here with you. Don't try to understand because people tend to dismiss, abuse, or confuse your grief just like they did Hannah's grief. And we tend to dismiss other people's grief abuse other people's grief 
or confuse other people's grief. Don't try to understand it or dismiss it or abuse it or confuse it. Just try to be available. See, grief is not an equation that needs solved. As a man, I'm very bad about this. Like, I see someone sad or upset, and I'm like, I must solve it. There's an equation here, and if I can say the right thing, if I can tell them the right thing, if I can give them the right spiritual formula, they can get through this grief. They can get to the other side faster. But grief is a journey that, can, that has no shortcuts. It has to be walked through slowly and methodically in order to get to the other side. See, grief is not an equation to be solved. It is an experience to be shared. So year after year, Hannah would go up to the tabernacle once a year. Her and her husband and the other wife and her children would come up and they would worship and sacrifice at the tabernacle. Now, each year she would think to herself, next year I'm going to have a kid. Next year I'm going to be a mom. Next year I'm going to be here with my baby. And year after year she came and went and she was not a parent. She was not a mom. She didn't have a child. And year after year, she finally comes this year and she's reached a breaking point. Maybe it was a certain age where she was like, I'll definitely have a kid by 30. You know, I'll definitely have a kid by 35, whatever it was. You know, I definitely will have this by this age. Maybe it was some kind of society marker she expected to keep. Like maybe her mom had a kid by this age or whatever it was. Maybe you're at your breaking point for your dream job or for your relationship or to have a child, to have a spouse, a financial peace or physical recovery. And you think, I really thought by this time I would have this. I really thought by this time God would intervene. I really thought by this time my dream would have happened. I really thought that this was going to be the time. Like surely by the time I turned this age, I would have that thing. Maybe by the time this happened, I would have this. And yet year comes and year goes and nothing seems to change. And I think like Hannah, it's okay to reach a breaking point and say, it's time to lament. Like I had hopes and dreams and I thought it would be by now and it hasn't happened. Lament. That's what the Bible calls us to do. It doesn't call us to fake it until we make it and just say, well, everything's good. Praise God. You know, it's all going okay. Over and over again, the people who reach a breaking point and they lament their praise. That's the spiritual practice we're supposed to do when we come to a breaking point. Notice how she prays to God. It says she pours out her heart. That's what she tells Eli. I'm pouring out my heart. We pour out our heart so our hearts don't drown in grief. If you try to keep it all inside, you're eventually going to spiritually drown yourself. And she also says she's praying in anguish and in resentment. Now, there's a lot of different prayers and ways to pray and stuff, but you probably don't usually go into prayer saying, this is going to be a prayer in anguish and resentment, God, so just get ready. But he can handle it. He wants us to pray. He wants us to pray honestly and openly. God doesn't turn a blind eye or a deaf ear to your anguish and resentment. He welcomes it. He says, come, be honest with me. I can take it. It's a way for you to process what you're feeling with a loving, listening God. She lets God know everything about how she's feeling. She doesn't run from God. She doesn't run from the problem. She runs the problem to her God. And somehow this becomes the turning point. Everything turns 
after this. She comes, she pours everything out to God. Her resentment, her anguish, her heartbreak, she pours it all out. And then she stands up. She stands up, she makes this promise, this vow to God. And then she turns and eats and no longer looks sad. And you're like, what happened? Nothing changed. God didn't speak. God didn't make a promise. She made a promise to him. He didn't promise anything to her. Um, he doesn't even speak to her. Like, nothing happens supernaturally, but somehow by lamenting, she's able to move to the other side of grief and begin to hope and begin to heal. There's no sign or promise, but somehow on the other side of lament, she finds hope. Think about that. Maybe if you take the time to process your grief, to feel the depth of the painful emotion, the disappointment and the grief, and to work through it and craft it into a lament to God full of anguish and resentment and saying, I didn't want things to be like this. I wanted to be married. I wanted to have this job. I wanted to have this education. I wanted to have this home. I wanted to live here. I wanted things to be like this. I wanted to be a parent. Pour it out to God. Let him know. And somehow that is a cathartic spiritual release in order to live in hope again. Honestly, pouring out every disappointment to God in an emotionally raw prayer allowed her to pass through grief to the other side, to hope and to blessing. God doesn't want you to try and keep it all together. He wants you to hand all the broken pieces to him. So she goes home with her husband and they conceive a child and she names him Samuel. Samuel means God heard me. He doesn't speak when she pours out her heart. She just knows that later on she has a kid and she says, God must have heard me because he actually gave me what I asked for. If God heard Hannah, he hears you and he hears me when we pour out our lament. When we say, God, why have these people turned on me? God, why have things not turned out like I thought and hoped and believed and dreamed and prayed and asked for? Why is it like this? God hears, he listens, and God acts. God hears when you lament about being childless. He hears when you lament about your job situation. He hears when you lament about your relationship, about your future, about your sickness, about your finances. Jesus hears and he cares. You say, how do we know that Jesus cares? Because Jesus went to the cross to restore the relationship between God and man. If he's willing to go to the cross, we know he's willing to go to any lengths to act on our behalf, to do good for us, even at incredible cost to himself. Nothing's more costly than God, the source of life, laying down his life on the cross so that we might live with him forever. So we might live and love like him in our everyday lives. The cross is a reminder that Jesus hears, he listens, and he loves. And Hannah's lament is a reminder that when we come to God with our honesty and our brokenness, he doesn't say, get yourself together and then come back. He says, no, no, I welcome people who come honestly and are honest about their brokenness because then I take those broken pieces and I turn them into a beautiful mosaic. And she named her son Samuel, God hears. And if God heard Hannah, he hears you and he hears me when we bring our lament. Jesus will never waste pain in our lives. Out of grief grows some of the most important spiritual fruit 
that you can grow. Out of grief, we become more and more like Jesus. See, grief trims off the areas of our life that are least like Jesus. There's nothing like grief to begin to conform you, to begin to shape you, to begin to mold you to live and love more like Jesus. Philippians 3.10 says, this is Paul speaking, I want to know Christ. Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him. There's something about suffering, grieving, processing our grief that actually makes us more like Jesus. We know already that Jesus practiced the spiritual discipline of lament. And when we lament, when we process our grief, we don't run from it, we don't hide from it, we don't try to distract ourselves, but we come to God and we lay it all out. We begin to be molded into the shape and image and person of Jesus. We begin to live and love and act like he does. See, I believe something happens when we reach the end of ourselves. When we are broken down to the point where we're like, this is it. This is the bottom of grief. There's nowhere else lower to go. Something happens when we reach the end of ourselves. We reach out for God. And what we find is he has been reaching out for us all along, but we wanted to do it on our own. And it took coming to the end of us to see his hand reaching down to help us. The end of our plans and strategies, the end of our resources and experience. When we reach the end of ourselves, we reach for God. And on the other side of lament is a new awareness and a deeper richness of living in the presence of a loving God. We know God listens to laments because of Hannah's story. And other people will know that Jesus hears people who cry out in pain because of your story and my story. Because of the story that we're, we will tell of our lament and how God heard us.